The following episode contains graphic details of a violent crime. This episode will have content pertaining to a suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you have had suicidal thoughts or suffer from PTSD, this episode may not be for you. If you find the things you hear become a trigger for you, please contact your nearest crisis center or National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Listener discretion is advised. Because of all of our listeners, Murder at Land Between the Lakes has been played almost 11,000 times in more than 15 countries from Canada to New Zealand. We tell you this not for bragging rights or because we want to be the best. Okay, well maybe a little, but most importantly, because the more Carla and Vicky's story is heard worldwide, the less their case can be ignored. We want to be heard. We want to speak up for the victims, the families, and for those that have been silenced. Thank you so much for listening in and sharing your stories with us. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. We hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and were able to spend quality time with family and friends. And if you were traveling or had some spare time, we hope you were able to download any episodes you haven't heard yet and were able to get caught up. That being said, we have a lot to cover considering we skipped a week. Let's see what we can cover this week without overwhelming anyone. I hope everyone was able to see the new tip line that we posted on our Facebook page. We know it works because we have been receiving calls on it. If you are on our social pages, we will add the hotline number for you to use and call at the end of this episode. You can call us anonymously or leave us your name, whatever you are comfortable with. Through all the calls, emails, and posts we've received, would you be surprised to know that we have not received any malicious, mean, or disheartening notes? Oh, by the way, that's not an invitation. (laughs) But we did receive one note asking this. Why hasn't Greg Charlton's name been brought up? Is he so above the law his name can't even be mentioned in the podcast? So, to no avail... We do think it's time that his name is brought up. Greg Charlton's name has been brought up to us many times. Greg graduated from Dover High School, class of 1975, so he was approximately 23 or 24 years old at the time of the girls' deaths. So along with receiving anonymous tips via phone calls, I think it's important to note that we have received emails from an anonymous account. In these emails, we have received pertinent information, documents, and letters that I am not so sure we could get our hands on otherwise, especially since we don't live in the area. One of the letters that we received earlier on last month is a copy of the Potneck News blog. This blog was posted online in 2013. This is where all of the information started to flourish about Tim Webb's alleged confession before his suicide. This blog goes on to name Greg Charlton and Tim Webb himself as the two men being on the scene when the girls were murdered. The story was pretty detailed, and we won't go on to tell you about everything that was described by the author. Now, this blog is no secret amongst the townspeople of Stewart County. When it ran online in 2013, the community went wild, and the the letter was printed and handed out everywhere in town, and we were pretty sure most natives in town have read this article in its entirety. 
It is pretty incriminating, and the two individuals in the town were sued for libel, and the case was closed with the promise to pull the blog. The author of the article claims to have received the information from a very reliable source, but as any good journalist should not do, did not reveal his or her sources unless they wanted to be named. We should also mention that to our knowledge, the author has never publicly mentioned the story or even brought up the girl's murders publicly ever again. Now, for the record and sake of this podcast, at this time, we think it's important to stress to all of our listeners that Lainey and I are not naming anyone as a suspect. There has never been a main suspect officially named. Now, we may have forgotten to mention that in this small town, there were 30 potential suspects at one time. We want to reiterate that in this episode, we are simply telling the story of the events that took place in Dover and what was in the story and, quite frankly, what has been told to us. We have mentioned a few of the potential suspects that were most likely on that 30-person suspect list and have heard about a few others, but none quite as prevalent as the ones we've mentioned to date. We have heard that Vicky may have possibly been in a relationship with Greg at one point. However, he was a bit older, but we do know that older men did like the girls, and Greg was around 24 at the time. Now, that relationship is only speculation. And just to make things a little more clear and acknowledge that Greg did in fact know the girls and the family, Greg Charlton was indeed the drunken trespasser on the property just weeks before the girls' disappearance. Deputy Viers had him removed from the property twice, and Mr. Charlton left in his blue truck both times. As we previously stated, Deputy Viers shared that he always regretted not arresting Charlton. But why do you think he wasn't arrested and only sent away? Well, most of you have probably put it together by now, but Greg Charlton is the son of the TBI agent, Jack Charlton, who inevitably was one of the first on the scene when the girl's remains were found. And we do know the deputy wrote up his complaint cards and those miraculously disappeared. So many people have mentioned that they believe Agent Charlton should have excused himself from this case immediately. Like maybe it could be a conflict of interest. His son had just been removed from the girl's property, not once, but twice for drunken rants. He had to have been aware that Greg had been in trouble and obviously had a problem with the girls. However, it was his jurisdiction. And from the beginning, it was the agent's job to find the girls. So what does Greg have to say about all of this? Well, first of all, in his statement, he said, I knew of the girls, but I didn't know them. Let's think about that. So we know that's not true because in Deputy Byer's statement, he stated himself that he ran Greg Charlton off the property twice because the girls were scared of him, that they were threatened, that he was threatening them. However, we did read earlier on in one of our episodes that the trespasser had yelled, I will kill you all to the girls. And we understand that that may not indeed be true. According to Mr. Byers, he said that they did not yell, um, I will kill you all. So what all was going on in the summer of 1980? 
Well, for all of our nostalgic friends, Jimmy Carter was serving as president and also defeated Senator Edward Kennedy to win renomination. The Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, was terrorizing the nation as a domestic terrorist. Most of the Midwest was suffering from a major drought and heat wave. The Summer Olympics were being held in Moscow, and in October, the Philadelphia Phillies beat the Kansas City Royals in Game 6 to win the 77th World Series. But what we want to know is, just where was Mr. Greg Charlton during the summer of 1980? Does he have a solid alibi for that hot September day? Well, Amelia, according to documentation that we received, Charlton did have an alibi for September 17th. We wanted to take a minute to talk about another recent cold case that was solved and was just announced this week by the Salisbury Police Department in Salisbury, North Carolina. 15-year-old Risa Dawn Trexler was killed in 1984 in her grandfather's home. She was found nude and stabbed to death on her bedroom floor. According to the Salisbury Post, officials would only say that the suspect was a black male and that the case had been cleared. However, the Post obtained a petition for the exhumation of Curtis Edward Blair, whose body, court records show, was exhumed to conduct a forensic evaluation. A piece of the knife's blade broke off and was found in Trexler's right shoulder and would prove to be crucial many years later in linking her to her killer. Parabon Nano Labs is how her killer was found. I've heard of this so many times just in the year or so, during this year of justice, and it seems so science fiction, but believe me, it is so real and so exciting. If you haven't heard of this, I hope you're ready. And I hope all of the perpetrators out there that think they got away with it are finally starting to lose sleep at night, just waiting for their DNA to show up at Parabon's lab. So what exactly is Parabon? Well, I'm sure it's way more complex than this, but we will try to sum it up for you in a shorter version. And we will post their website for you on our Facebook page too, so you can learn more about them. It is so fascinating. Snapshot DNA Phenotyping Service is the name of a DNA phenotyping tool developed by Parabon Nano Labs, which creates composite face imaging sketches based on DNA samples. So with just a little sample, they can easily tell things like gender, race, ancestry, hair color, eye color, skin predictions, probability of freckles, and even the shape of the face. The United States Department of Defense provided approximately $2 million in development financing for Snapshot and was awarded a two-year contract by the DOD to develop a software platform dubbed Keystone for the forensic analysis of DNA evidence. Curtis Blair died in 2004 without ever paying for his crime. We will never know if he felt guilty for ending this teen girl's life, for what he did to her family, or if he ever lived in shame. Why does Carla and Vicky's killer or killers get to go free? Are they still living? Are they living in guilt or shame? Do they even care how their family has suffered for 40 years? Do they even understand the effect it has had on the small town of Dover, Tennessee? And again, do they even care? We are looking into finding answers as to what is still available that may hold DNA evidence. Since much of the evidence was lost, we can only hope something is still available with that one sample DNA on it. If the girl's clothing is still available, or any of the cigarettes or 
beer bottles collected are available, we are pleading with the TBI to have it tested for Parabon. So many questions are shrouded around the eyewitness composite sketch. So why not go right to the source? Can we do something now or is it too late? Is this murderer dead and gone? Or is he out there living life with a family? Can someone still pay for this crime? Thank you for listening. You can continue to follow discussions on our Facebook page, Murder at Land Between the Lakes. If you have information you'd like to share with us, you can reach us directly at 609-429-0371. That's 609-429-0371. Or email us at discrepancypod at gmail.com. That's discrepancy, D-I-S-C-R-E-P-A-N-C-Y-P-O-D at gmail.com. You can remain anonymous as you wish or leave us your name. This has been an Anchor production hosted and edited by Amelia Courtney and Lainey Sullivan.